What you want to do is you want to basically keep growing your property portfolio through manufacturer returns, through, you know, capital appreciations, manufactured appreciations. You use your personal income to pay a bit of your debt. You use superannuation to pay a bit of your debt. You sell maybe one fee to bring your debt down. But what you're trying to achieve is a bigger asset base. That's what you're trying to do. You're not focusing on number of properties. You're focusing on a bigger asset base. Okay. And so how does this work in real life is typically what you're doing is you're growing your asset base to a level where you can use that asset base to leverage more equity out of that property. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy a Property podcast. Today we are going to talk about how many properties are enough for you to retire comfortably. We're going to talk about what strategies do high net investors use to retire early and why should you have a plan in place to get you there. Now, before we get right into these details, let me introduce my co-host, Miss Wonderful, Cheryl Leong. Cheryl, how are you? I am amazing, Moss. It's so good to be here as always. Again, another fantastic question, which I know gets asked all the time how many properties and I feel like we're often sort of drawn into this trap to think that we need to have you know a hundred properties to be able to uh, retire young and live you know financially free so you know let's talk through that and maybe debunk a little bit of a myth to say you know more is better People have all of these crazy ideas, right? You know, you see, you know, buyers agents jumping up and saying you need five properties or eight properties or, you know, I'm not going to say more than this, but, you know, X number of properties, you know, required to retire in X number of years, for example, right? Yeah. So while many investors know that, you know, the property is a safe haven to replace their income, I found that, you know, most actually don't understand how they are going to actually get there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was listening to this particular buyer's agent where they were saying, oh, this is my property number four and this would help me retire by 2035. And he's in buying property around $500,000. And I was like, not really, my friend. Like, you know, this doesn't get you to retirement, you know, crunch the numbers, right? So what's important here is that, you know, while most investors hope that one day, you know, they can replace their personal income with the cash from investment properties, most don't have a strategy to achieve their goals. You know, they don't, you know, even have a plan in play to basically understand how to achieve this financial independence in its truest sense. Yeah. Maybe we need to sort of step back a little bit and say, well, what is financial independence? And it's going to be very different for everyone, right? So I sort of feel like they, like exactly what you said, we need a strategy, which means that you actually need to know what that amount is. And what are some ways to determine what that amount is? Because right at the moment, you know, I'm assuming most people have a mortgage of some sort, whether it's investment property or their own properties. So, you know, the income that they're earning, more than 30, 40% of that's going to a mortgage. I guess what we need to understand is what is financial freedom for person A and person B, it's going to be very different. Like someone who's person A who's got very, you know, quite strewed with their spending and probably has no children, <laughs> so doesn't have to feed many mouths. Like how much they need to be able to be financially independent is going to be very different 
with compared to someone who is quite used to a lavish lifestyle and maybe has five children and all are in boarding school or in private school, whatever that might be, but that's the sort of lifestyle that they want to maintain, then obviously that bar is going to be very different. So I guess it's a very interesting question, right? And I'm always a big believer of financial independence rather than financial freedom. What's the difference? And I'll give you my remit and, you know, my headspace as to how these are different, right? People use them interchangeably, but I don't. I consciously use them quite differently. Financial freedom to a lot of people typically is that, you know, I don't have any debt, right? So from their mindset perspective, I have my house paid off, you know, I don't have any debt, you know, I'm living comfortably, right? So I'm not tied to the system. Basically, that's how they see financial freedom. Whereas my view of the world is debt is not bad, right? Financial independence basically for me is walking down the road and, you know, looking at a shop, thinking about, okay, I need to buy X, walking in there and buying it, right? Without even thinking about the consequences because I can make that choice knowing that I don't have worried, I don't need to be worried about the cash that is attached to it. That's the truest nature of the financial independence. And so whether there is debt or there is no debt, it does not really matter. I would use that debt to the advantage for me to provide that choices in the life, right? Where a lot of people go wrong is basically not differentiating this, right? And so when you talk about financial freedom, people force their complete effort in becoming debt-free, whereas financial independence is all about forcing all the effort in generating cash flow. It's yeah. not about becoming debt-free. Yeah. It's about generating cash. Flow. And so, you know, when I'm doing strategies for people, when I'm discussing strategies for people, I always say, well, debt is not bad. Like even if you're in your 60s and if you have debt, that's great, right? Some of the biggest names in the world, like the Buffets and the Warrens of the world, right? They have the amount of debt that you can even just, you can't even think about, right? Yes. Yeah. And they are financially independent. So, yeah. Much, very much so. I mean, they're using debt for leverage. At the end of the day, what you want to be able to use it for is to leverage your situation. But what ideally, what you want to be actually focused and calculated on, what is what is the net, what is the net income that you eventually get? And again, you need to know what that amount is. And if you're not, if you're unclear as to what that is, again, it's going to be different for everyone. Some people might say, well, I only need to live off a net of 100K of income. What could be net? 50k because you don't have a mortgage and you don't really want to travel very much and you live off you know baked beans and toast so 50k might be fine for you or you might live in bali well actually bali is quite expensive now so you might live in an island somewhere where 50k is you're living like absolute royalty so really in that situation then it's really understanding what is that amount for you what is that net income for you passive income and that could be a variety of property business other investments and all that right but for this purpose let's just say you're focused just on property it's then you can then work out well if it's a hundred thousand of net income let's not get too fancy with the after tax and all of that let's just say then you can work out right? That's the amount I need. Now, what is the property type asset? How many do I need? And that's where we roll over to Moss who will share his wisdom as to how to strategize to get there. I think there are two things. It's not just about passive income. It's also about net wealth, right? So I was talking to a client before where I said, you know, if your passive income, if your target is only passive income, say if you want to generate $100,000, that's easy. 
That's very, very easy. I can take you there in two years, right? You know, that passive income would deteriorate, if I'm using the word right, along the way because the building is depreciating, right? And so while passive income is great right now, you need to ensure that the asset value goes up as well because that's what's going to create generational wealth for you. So you can't just have a single binary yeah. measure around just the cash flow, but you need to have the net equity side of things as well as to, okay, how are you using that net equity to pass the baton and create the generational wealth yeah. for yourself? And so yeah. million dollar question that people ask, how many properties is enough to basically quit your day job and live comfortably? The answer is simple. It Depends, right? Bring robots that got the answer that I wanted. Yeah, and probably that's not what, you know, anyone wants to hear, right? But, you know, that is the fact. It's actually a bad question. If you think about it, it's a bad question. It does not really matter how many properties you own. And so I know that it's a really fancy thing to, you know, have a barbecue conversation and be proud of having five or eight or ten. That number, you know, is great for boosting up your self-ego. But... You know, I would rather own one Westfield shopping center than 50 secondary regional properties. So I think, you know, for users and listeners, you know, they would understand as to, you know, while many property investors want to replace their income, I've seen most actually don't even understand how to even get there. You know, they don't have a strategy. They don't have a plan. You know, they just have hope. And I ask this question to everyone that I meet that, you know, you're trying to live off the rental income. How many people have you personally seen living off the rental income? And if I ask that question to you, Cheryl, and minusing the me, you know, you don't, you can't say most. How many people do you literally know living off? I would say a handful. Yeah. So exactly, right? So for, and you, I would classify you as an astute investor, right? For a lot of people who are mom and dad investors, they don't even know this is like, for them, this is an unseen territory, an unheard territory, right? And so when they talk to a lot of people who are not even getting the rental income themselves or, you know, are not getting the passive income themselves, it ultimately comes down to, well, it's a rarity. You're, it's so rare to generate cash flow through properties without having a plan in place. Yeah. Because we've just been sort of, what's it called, mentally positioned to just say, just keep Buying, buy more properties, just buy, buy, buy in the bank. Well, then, you know, when you've got borrowing capacity, keep buying. And eventually the value will go up and things like that. And so I think the purpose of what it is that we do is to be able to go, hey, let's make investing, developing property, you know, building our wealth with property more efficient. Let's make it more efficient. Let's consider how we can do it quicker and with more of an impact on your lifestyle and I said generational wealth. So Moss, what are some of the options then that we can consider and how to be able to one, decide how many properties or how many if we're going I guess, you know, if we're gonna use a metric like how many properties that will be probably one, how many properties and then what type of properties as well. And the strategy behind that also. Typically everyone would have that magical number. Okay. So I'm not saying that What I'm saying is that there is not a universal number of the properties that you need. You would have your own strategy and that strategy would dictate the magical number. But that strategy would also dictate the type of properties, the growth targets, the yield targets that you need to achieve now in order to get to the passive income target, that net well target in seven years, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, right? And if I think about this logically, there are typically three ways, you know, that I've seen people use 
property as a vehicle to retire. Okay. The first one is the yeah. one that is most talked about. The second one is slightly better than the first one. And the third one is more around what, you know, what I call it is contemporary, you know, non-conventional way that a lot of people don't know about. So let's start off with the first one, yeah. which is the most talked about that I would think that every investor knows about this, that this is the easiest way or the coolest way or the barbecuest way to retire, basically. Barbecue bragging rights. And so the first and the most common way that people talk about is basically buy as many properties as you can, finger crossed, let them grow, and then sold them at a given point in time in the future. Maybe 10 properties, sell five, keep five, you know, pay off your debt, and basically create the cash flow through that. Yeah. Okay? Yeah the magical number right so you know buy 10 or buy 20 you know sell 50 percent pay off your debt because you're assuming that all the properties have doubled in value in 20 years time and then create the cash flow for yourself all righty well that sounds simple enough what are some of the pitfalls around that yeah so ultimately what you're assuming here is that every property needs to perform okay the second thing is that you are also assuming that the bank would lend you to that level of debt right yeah. without you putting the third is that in order to achieve that people always overextend or overinvest and so they get into this miserable times where you know they are living hand to mouth burning you know yeah. all their bridges you know yeah. paper rich cash poor yeah. and the person's circumstances change and then they end up starting selling because they're like oh I can't do this you know I'm property number four and you know I'm already feeding you know baked beans to my kids and you know I'm walking 10 kilometers to the station because I can't you know catch an uber anymore and basically that's you know that's the route that you end up in right so yeah in high interest rate environments and you know and people have done this successfully, by the way, don't get me wrong, right? But it's those people who have done this successfully over the last sort of five, eight years, 10 years when interest rates were coming off and people were like, oh, this is easy. You can do this and you can keep acquiring this. But as soon as you see uh, a normality come back into the interest rate environment, you know, people start struggling and, you know, people who are over investing start sacrificing their lifestyle. You know, they start feeling and they start hearing no from the banks quite often now. And, you know, that's where the story ends, right? Yeah, yeah. So not a sustainable way to get there. Yeah, and I think you raise a few really interesting points there. And admittedly, we've gone down that path many years ago where I was like, yep, okay, we'll purchase eight to 10 properties. So we started on the first one and then the second and then the third and then they were all negatively geared. And they went, like you said, we were living off bread and water for a while. We couldn't, <laughs> anytime anyone would ask us if we want to go out, we're like, God, can't afford it. We're yeah, going to yeah, we'll go to the backyard. I bought my cast wine ship and so I'll drink it by myself. Yeah, exactly. And, and I said, then the serviceability, first of all, you know, if you didn't buy in the right spot, then you're waiting for capital growth to happen. If you're negatively geared, again, then you're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for ta your tax return. And you can't, like, you're just constantly waiting, right? This, this, it's this frustrating waiting game. And you sort of go, well, that's if you haven't purchased properly, right? So if, you know, if you go back to our previous cast episodes around buying investment grain and, and considering whether it's negatively geared, positively geared, cash flow. So if you haven't got a strategy in place and you're not picking the right types of properties that are underperforming, then for you to get from that goal, where you are now to that goal is going to be a big struggle, isn't it? Absolutely. It's almost impossible to hit the dot 
right yeah. on the red market time, right? You know, even as a professional, you know, and I say this hand to heart that, you know, we pick suburbs, but not all suburbs outperform each other, right? There are some suburbs who does significantly better than others, right? And so, you know, for you to make that call that, you know, you're buying or going to buy 10 properties or extending yourself or investing yourself, negatively geared, lower yield, even like five, five and a half, six percent yield, I'll still call it lower yield, yeah. right? But you're doing it with the intention that you're going to sell 50% of this yeah. off. Mind you, where this goes terribly wrong, God forbid, that, you know, you have lost your job or that accidental child or, you know, anything, right? You know, all of these crazy stuff. Uh, and then next thing you know, you're back to square one where you are like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think theoretically it sounds valid it sounds quite a sound strategy you know you keep buying and then you sell it down and then you leave sort of almost debt free and it's not saying that it can't happen you know it does happen we've seen it happen but for the majority and, and that's also works really well if you have a really high paying job and you're able to leverage serviceability or you've got bonuses or whatever that might be so that can work quite well for that's if you know you don't take a lot too much and then almost to a certain extent you know if you've got really really good serviceability you can build a good portfolio and you've you've diversified your portfolio you can let it grow eventually sell out it's a sound strategy what then this you know the second way to do it then we can assess you know then let, let's explore a few few different different ways there are down before going down the route of the second way i'm going to say something really really controversial here right yeah don't listen to buyers agents. Don't listen to people like me saying we have 10 properties, 15 properties, 30 properties, whatever, right? Understand that people who are running a business of property are typically creating the cash flow by either selling that property to you or selling that service to you, right? Yeah. So, you know, we have on cash flow, right? If you're going to, you know, listen to people who are mentors or property coaches or property group, including myself, like I'm not putting myself out of the bucket, right? I'm putting myself in the basket at the same time as well, right? Yeah. That this is the way forward then or buying cheaper properties is going to get you there. It's not, right? There is definitely a better way. And yes, you are right in saying that I've gone down that route myself, right? And I've said this out openly on the podcast that, you know, 2014 is when I hit the reset on my property portfolio, you know, went from like, I think nine or 10 properties and just, you know, cut it down right away. I'd be like, well, this doesn't work. This is just silly. Yeah. This is stupid. It's not how it needs to be done, right? Yeah. So what is the way? I think that's the good segue, right? So the second way, which is a slightly advanced version of this strategy, is basically reducing LVR to fund your property portfolio. Now, a lot of people wouldn't have come across this strategy. And so the way this works typically is that you don't keep buying. You buy and then you stop or you slow down. And you let your property portfolio grow over a number of years, almost like 15, 20 years, okay? And what you want to do is you want to basically keep growing your property portfolio through manufacture returns, through, you know, capital appreciations, manufactured appreciations. You use your personal income to pay a bit of your debt. You use superannuation to pay a bit of your debt. You sell maybe one property to bring your debt down. But what you're trying to achieve is a bigger asset base. That's what you're trying to do. You're not focusing on number of properties. You're focusing on a bigger asset base. Okay. And so how does this work in real life is typically what you're doing is you're growing your asset base to a level where you can use that asset base to leverage more equity out of that property portfolio. Yeah. Okay. Understand that 
an average property portfolio, and let's talk about, you know, high net worth property portfolios. Let's talk about a million dollar net property portfolio with no mortgage on it. Let's assume even at 4% yield, you know, that portfolio would generate somewhere about $100,000 after tax, basically coming back as cash flow, you know, into your property, into your portfolio. Okay. Now, so no one has $5 million worth of portfolio that is debt-free. It takes years and years to basically become debt-free. And so what you're talking about here today is using the debt and the leverage to your advantage. Hmm. So what you've typically done is, you know, you have basically held on to a property portfolio, which is say $5 million worth over 10 to 15 years. Okay. And that portfolio might be $2 million and it's grown to $5 million over 15 years to 20 years and your LVR is typically dropped from say 80% to say 40 or 50%. Okay. Now at 40 or 50% LVR, typically this property portfolio is probably neutrally geared or you're paying down a P&I on it and you know, it's, you're comfortably holding on to it. What you're now doing is you're going and taking this portfolio back to the bank and you are saying to the bank, bank, I have $5 million worth of assets in my property portfolio. This property portfolio sits at 45% or 50% LVR. I have a bit of cash I'm from this property portfolio. Can I get access to $100,000 in equity? Okay, this is refinance that we had. And the bank would give it to you. If you, you got stability. Yes. If, even if you have, because for $100,000 to get it from the bank as refinance, you know, you don't need a lot of cash flow coming in from your property right. portfolio, right? And so even mm-hmm. if it's all cash flow coming in from that 45, 50% LVR property portfolio, the bank would give you that $100,000. What you're doing with the 100000 is because that's tax-free money t- technically, but it's debt, you're using that debt to your personal disposable income. Now, the question here that becomes is that why would you be so silly to use the debt to fund your retirement or use the debt to you, towards your you know, personal expenses? Mm. The rationale behind this is that an asset base of $5 million, even if it grows at half the rate of what an Australian average is, say instead of 6%, it grows by 3%, you know, you are still generating about $150,000 worth of equity into your property portfolio. If you are meeting Australian average, you are generating almost $300,000 worth of equity in your property portfolio every year. Hmm. And so the thing is, out of that $300,000 or $150,000, you are using that $100,000 equity as income and basically living off that smart strategy, but a lot of pitfalls. Yeah, I was going to, I was, I was watching to go, what's the risk mitigation? How do you, you know? So let's talk about the pitfalls because I can see a few things there where, you know, I can just see sort of. You think Gerald would be the biggest pitfall for this strategy? Well, I mean, the first few things that scream out at me there, that basically you spent on money, I'm I'm thinking there's, you know, interest, but then your LVR is not particularly high. But say this interest rate increases, you spent all your money, your money there. I, and then, I mean, in terms of then the remaining debt, if that property is not rented out, like how do you pay that off? So I haven't really thought it through, but it just seems riddled with all sorts of risks there for me because I'm not comfortable. I'm personally not comfortable with that not knowing how I'm repaying that debt. See, typically what you're doing is you are playing with the longevity of the property cycle, right? So anything that you hold for 20 years is going to double in value, okay? Let's agree to that. At 6% growth, even at the mediocre growth of 5%, that means that your 
doubles in value 15 to 20 years down the track. And so this is like an old school mentality where you buy for the D-Day to happen in the future and that D-Day is going to provide you for that retirement, right? And so you are in it for a really long game, in it for a really long haul, which is fine, but it requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of mistakeless investing. It requires a lot of negatively geared along the way investing because, you know, the interest rates move up and down. So you're navigating through the cycle. And so there would be times where, you know, you would be significantly strived of cash versus there would be times where you would be okay. Uh, But most importantly, this is not sustainable investing what you're doing is you are basically taking a lot of the risks up front in order to get a payout in 20 years right and so it comes down to the original sort of thing that we were talking about that the whole idea of wealth creation is helping improve your lifestyle now it's not about improving it in 20 30 years you know if anything covid has taught us you know, you don't have 20 years to live, right? The whole delayed gratification thing has just gone out the window. There's no one does delayed gratification now. It's like, I want this now. Uber Eats, I want this now. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, what this particular strategy does not answer to is the change in personal circumstances, right? Yeah. And that's what it doesn't answers too, right? It basically talks about generational wealth and does it really, really well, but it does not talk about continuous improvement in your own personal well-being along the way, okay? It almost, like this strategy is almost like one generation has to kill themselves in order for the next generation to basically live better, right? You know, in all honesty, right? I'm doing this for my great-great-grandchildren, yeah. And so that's the mentality that basically comes with this strategy. It works 100%, but not as contemporary cutting edge, not as, you know, non-conventional in the way of where, you know, the property investing is. But this is assuming as well, at some point, you've got to sell to be able to repay the debt at some point. Well, I mean, you're not repaying the debt typically at all, right? Because what you're doing is you are playing off against the market, right? And so what you're doing is you're letting the property portfolio grow. So you're not buying and acquiring. Yeah. Basically acquiring, say, 2 million worth of assets and you're letting them grow from 2 to 5 million over a period of 15 to 20 years, right? When you're pulling out the equity, you've got to pay interest on the equity in that day. Yes. You still got to make sure that, and I hear what you're saying there, because of the LVR, hopefully the income from the property is paying that off anyhow. But then because you're pulling out equity, then that's going to affect your LVR anyway. And so this so, so that the mentality of this strategy is that you are going to do everything after 20 years, right? And so, you know, this is predominantly for people who are in their 60s and they can potentially do this for five years, right? And so, you know, and then the strategy basically says, you know, this is it. You know, thank you very much. You know, your time is up. You know, you can't do more of this. There's a bit of Robin. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this also, this strategy reminds me a bit of the, I don't know if it still happens, like the reverse mortgage to a certain extent, which at one point it was very, very popular. And those of you who aren't familiar with reverse mortgages, are they still a thing? Reverse mortgages? The majority of the banks have basically stepped away from it. No, okay. For those of you who are not old enough as, as we are to remember what reverse mortgages are, it would be basically, say, if you had, a million dollars property and maybe you had 200k in debt remaining and say you took out 500k to live off for the rest of your life but effectively if i'm not wrong that debt would be repaid when you sort of go right 
So a lot of people were like, excellent, that's fantastic. You know, all this stuff is it. Interest-free money, I don't care who has to pay it off. At some point, my estate's going to sell my property. I guess the risk for the bank was, well, what if, you know, the property wasn't sold for as much as as you borrow? Again, that's what valuation for. But again, that was sort of, it's not as popular for obviously many, many reasons. But it again, that comes down, there's a bit of risk mitigation and management there that I think needs to happen. And I feel that if you're someone that's going to go down that path, you're going to have to be fairly disciplined to a certain extent. Personally, I don't think the strategy will be for me. And this is the same. This is the thing. Like everyone, like you need to understand what strategies there are that suit your risk appetite, your style of investing as well. And again, we talked about what your goals are. So I'd love to explore what other strategies are available most in the menu of property strategies to get us financially free. Not so there is a much more advanced strategy that basically talks to you know the same notion of using the debt to your advantage to grow a healthy asset base, but your inclination is towards your portfolio generating cash flow along the way, okay, rather than waiting for the LVR or using the LVR to your advantage, right? And so what you're doing is you're building a strategy in such a way you're using your acquisition strategy in such a way that you are parking, you know, super cash flow. Or properties like commercial properties, co-living properties, you know, to some extent, NIS, you know, all of these various different means, dual income properties. And what you're doing is you are basically creating the sustainable property portfolio along the way. Okay, just to give an example for so that, you know, people can understand, and we've talked about this in a lot of our previous podcasts as well. You know, a million dollar co-living property in today's time can give you a net yield of somewhere around 4%. I'm talking about net yield after mortgage, right? So I'm not talking about commercial net yield. I'm talking about net yield after mortgage, which basically means that it's $40,000 back into your pocket. And I'm talking about like higher interest rates at 7%. I'm not even talking about, you know, two and a half, three percent interest rates at this stage. Okay. Which basically means that, you know, three of these and you're ready to retire, right? Typically, if you think about it, like logically. Yeah. But what you need to do is you want these super high positive cash flow properties, you know, commercial properties to basically create that sustainability in your property portfolio to take you to that 15 year mark sustainably, comfortably, while mm-hmm. you can improve your life. The idea is not so that you're creating cash flow to burn it. You are creating cash flow to provide more buffers into your property portfolio in itself, right? And so you can use that cash flow to invest harder or you can use that cash flow to improve your lifestyle you know that's your choice yeah 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 and and also because you've got that level of cash flow that's going to going to improve your serviceability as well uh, again if, if you structured that correctly and you want to make sure you've got a good accountant that will help you with that that means that you're you're less likely to hit that ceiling less likely or not you know you could almost have infinite borrowing power to a certain extent right if you're Certainly. I'll, I'll give you an example of a particular client that i was talking to just recently and the bank said we would not give you money to build a six bedroom roaming house but we would give you the money to build a nine bedroom roaming house like go figure so we will not give you very interesting right so they're like oh we can't give you that for say 700, for example, but we'll give you a debt of a million dollars. That's not an issue because you're building a nine bedroom because there is more cash flow coming mm-hmm. out of that property portfolio. Of course, this strategy has its own pros and cons as well. Mind you that, you know, this strategy does not come clean of pitfalls. 
of course, you know, you are doing a lot more aggressive investing. You're going for, you know, particular type of assets that might have, you know, issues in relation to the concentration risk or the vacancy risk in some of these things, you know, buying commercial properties interstate or in regional towns or living properties, putting nine tenants and it creates its own risk, but you need to mitigate those risks within your property portfolio as well. It's very, very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's just being able to go, well, then the question is, is that purely focused on cash flow and how do we still balance that portfolio with capital growth? Yeah. And so I think that's the most important thing, right? What I love about this strategy and I follow this strategy personally myself and shall to some extent you do as well. Yes, you're doing a lot more aggressive investing, but you know, you know, your mindset is that you know you don't have a sell mindset. You have a refinance mindset to basically go in and use that money to create more money for yourself, right? And yes, there is concentration risk along the way, but what you're doing is you are managing that concentration risk by you know either doing multiple states or multiple products or you know different types of investing at the same time. But what I really love about this strategy is it allows you to fix your mistakes quite quickly in the piece as well. Because the cash flow here, you're not worried about fixing that mistake, right? Because you're assessing your portfolio at every given point in time in a periodic basis. And you're saying, okay, you know, this is a lot more risky and I'm not going to do this. It gives you that opportunity to go into developments and test out developments, you know, increase your risk, decrease your risk at various different times in life, right? Yeah. Whereas other property strategies don't typically let you do that. And that's what I really enjoy about, you know, you can define your risk appetite based on your time in life where you are. Yeah, absolutely. So in that situation then, how many properties would we need if we're talking about strategy three? Look, I mean, as I said, right, you know, three properties can get you to about, you know, $100,000 in passive income post-tax, right? You know, so $3 million and probably what, $600,000 in, you know, you know, deposit, right? And so, yes, you know, you can get there pretty quickly. But again, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, your risk appetite how aggressive do you want to be, how diversified do you want to be, and understand that there is this dependency on serviceability when you start off on, you know, some of these aggressive strategies. And so having a right structure in place is also important too, right? Yeah. You know, if you have an access to a million dollars, you can retire right now by creating that $140,000 cash flow for yourself, right? Yeah. Or $120,000 cash flow for yourself, right? So you don't have to worry about, you know, 30 years or 20 years, you know, in other strategies, you know, you have two and a two and a half million dollar worth of asset and yet you're not retiring, you're still paying off, right? In this scenario, if you have two and a half million dollar worth of net in uh, like wealth, you know, typically you can retire tomorrow, you know, with $250,000 worth of passive income coming to it. Yeah, we've, and I had this exact conversation with a colleague the other day and he's got, I think, close to $5 million in property and maybe about $2 million in debt. So he's got $3 million in equity, right? And he's a bit stuck and he's like, well, I don't, I'm still working my job, you know, should I go into development or how do I, what? What do I do? But I've got some properties that are negative geared. They're in great spots, but you know, they're probably 2% yield if I'm lucky, but they're in blue chip suburbs. And so I think the, the key thing, and I said to him, we're not providing personal advice. It's like, you know, consider how, you know, what is the goal for you? Like, what's the, the first goal for you? Is it to replace your income? Then, you know, if it was me, I look at how to leverage my portfolio to replace my income. And if those properties are are not in line with that particular goal, then make an assessment, 
as to the opportunity, you know, the opportunity risk and make an assessment as to, well, do you still want to sit on it and wait for it to grow and not be able to access the equity because you don't have the serviceability anyhow? Right. Or are you wanting to exit your job and replace your income quicker? In which case, then consider whether you need to hold the asset or not, which it's something that we spoke about in a previous episode. So yeah, I think it's definitely worth assessing your own. If you've got a current portfolio, like really assess what that portfolio is, how you can maximize that particular portfolio, right? Yeah. And then go from there. One thing that people do quite religiously that I see them, and I saw myself doing that a long time ago as well, is that, you know, we try to get too much out of a single property. Okay. I want this property to generate growth and high yield and development potential and everything under the sun, right? And while the unicorns are there, I'm not saying that they are not there. Yeah. I'm saying it's okay to have a singular focus on a singular property, right? Don't try creating cash flow and growth from a single property when your strategy is creating significant cash flow, right? So, you know, there are properties that are there just for growth and then there are properties that are there just for cash flow, right? Nothing wrong with that, right? You know, if I have a big block of land, you know, in Crow's Nest, you know, or, you know, Darling Harbor, for example, yes, it's a really, really blue chip area, right? I don't want to sell it. Why would I sell it? Yeah. And it's purely there for growth perspective, then I would buy on the flip side a property using the equity purely from a cash flow perspective. And there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that strategy as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where people go significantly wrong is, oh, I want growth and I want cash flow and I want development potential from a single property. Well, hello, this is not an ice cream shop. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So guess, I guess from the strategies that we've shared, what are the key things for our audience to be able to take away and apply to their own individual circumstances and to come up with the right strategy to suit them? What, you know, give us three key things to ask ourselves. Look, my first key is having a tangible target in place is very important. So net wealth target, a passive income target. When are you going to achieve that target by? So tangibility in relation to not just the target in itself, but also the time, you know, as to the, the period that is required for you to get there. And that would dictate what are you going to chase and how are you going to get there? Again, a lot of people don't think about this logically, right? And so once you get to that information, once you have this information on hand, I want to generate $150,000 and $4 million worth of properties by the time I hit 40. And I'm 36 right now. I have four years to get there. How do I get there, you know, with one property or two properties right now, for example, that, and I'm sitting on an equity of $300,000. That is, and ultimately the question that you should pose yourself in a much more logical fashion. And you would get the answers pretty much right away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and apply that to your circumstance, like get a piece of paper out, do your numbers. I think it's really important that you do your numbers, understand your asset and liability position and then work out, well, okay, if I want to remove my, you know, if I don't have a mortgage, what am I actually living? What, you know, what do I really live for? So do those calculations and it's going to, you know, it's an exercise that you need to sit down to do so that you have at the end of the day, like I said, if you don't have a target to work towards, then you're shooting blind. And then you don't actually know when you've actually hit that target, you know? So you're actually then expanding more energy than you need to. Again, like, you know, I said, I've got 
but someone I spoke to, like he's got a potentially a really healthy income generating portfolio if he actually looked at restructuring his portfolio. So have that target, know how, you know, know what you're working towards and then apply some of the strategies, pick the strategy that works for you and do your research as to the type of asset that you want to that you want to invest in. Then if that's something that's too challenging for you and you still are confused, engage, you know, engage someone, your A team, your accountant, your finance broker, your property advisor, whoever, to be able to guide you along to make the right decisions for you. Otherwise, again, you'll be shooting blind. Golden words, Cheryl, you know, as a closing and parting comments, right? That a lot of people are... Golden words. Yeah, because a lot of people are scared of remediating their property portfolio, right? They're just scared to let go. They're like, oh, why do I sell? And why do I have to sell? You know, I'll keep killing myself. I think these are just golden words that, you know, don't be scared to remediate your property portfolio and go in the direction that you want to really go, right? You know, this property portfolio that is sitting at 40% LVR is not going to do you any good if your kids are living off baked beans. Some kids love baked beans, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and no, yes. yeah 100% means nothing. Not every day. <laughs> I don't think that's particularly great for their digestive system, but never mind. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Thank you for sharing the insights. This was great. This was awesome. For you. No, thank you. Listeners, if you have stories or if you have different strategies that you followed, to get to the retirement or if you know people who are living off rental income please tag them into the comments below share your stories share your insights if you are being stuck or you know how did you navigate to come out of some of these you know crazy portfolio debacles thank you for listening to us take care stay safe keep smiling keep investing this is Mosin Cheryl thanks everyone take care ciao